0: I think kind of sets the stage for what we were beginning for this month of October, as you may now be aware of. We've mentioned it for the last several weeks. We are kind of embarking on a a re-envisioned, an updated version of our former week of evangelism. You know, it's kind of served as a end of summer or fall outreach type of event for us last few years. And we have this desire and this need to be faithful and fruitful in all of our ministries. And so we thought for this year and maybe the years ahead, you know, we'll kind of take it one year at a time. We wanted to turn that look at evangelism introspective. We, We went to look at evangelism as it pertains to the church. Paul talks in Ephesians 4, about how pastors, teachers, the apostles, the prophets, and even the evangelists are given to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body unto a mature man in the fullness of Christ. And so that's what we're embarking on in this month of October. For um, this morning and then this Sunday night and then the next three weeks after this, those Sunday evenings, we're going to look at the church's call to evangelize. We're going to consider things like God's sovereignty and His glory in evangelism, the hindrances and the challenges. What is our message and what is the end of evangelism? Because it doesn't stop just when you preach the gospel and the soul comes to Christ. So tying evangelism into the idea of discipleship. For this morning, our um, duty, our our task is to look at God's sovereignty and evangelism. And to do that, I want to look at God's sovereignty over salvation. Because if God is sovereign over salvation, then He is sovereign in our evangelism. And to do that, I want to look at what is a fairly familiar passage, maybe a familiar overall idea, and, and look and see some instruction as to God's sovereignty in salvation and consider the implications that flow out of that for our duties to evangelize. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you have a Bible, please turn there, and we'll look at verses 60 through 71, the end of this passage. Now, before we read that, I want to give you just a little bit of backdrop, a little bit of background as to what's going on, and it should be familiar to you. At least it will be. When I When we talk about it, John 6 begins with the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if you're a Bible student at all, you know the feeding of the 5,000 was 5,000 men plus women and children, so likely around 20,000 plus people that Jesus fed. And after he fed the 5,000, he then withdrew from the people because they wanted to take him by force and make him their king. He withdrew into the mountains. His disciples went to cross the water in a boat and during the time they're on the water a storm kind of arose and they look out as they're fighting the waves and they see Jesus walking to them on the water so this was a period in which Jesus's ministry was growing and flourishing there were humongous massive crowds following Jesus because he was ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit, and he was performing many miracles. He was doing exactly what it would take to draw in the crowds. But as his ministry was reaching this climax, Jesus then does something kind of strange. In the rest of John 6, he then says that, I give you myself as the bread of life. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood if you were to have eternal life. That was a perplexing statement. the the church growth strategists, the missional-minded experts of our day probably would not say, hey, you've got a growing crowd, now tell them to eat your flesh and drink your blood. But that's what Christ did, and we'll get into why he did that in a moment. But with that, that's kind of what leads us up to John 6, verses 60 and following. So let's read those verses. If you would, please stand with me in honor and reverence and giving attention to the reading of God's word. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60, this is the inerrant and inspired word of God. It says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they had heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, he said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing, and the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless the Father unless it has been granted to him from the Father. And as as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed And have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, he said, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. May the Lord bless his word and write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now let's bow together and ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word today. Lord God, You are great, and You are greatly to be praised. We have a simple prayer this morning that Your Word would penetrate our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would consider Your great sovereignty over the glorious work of salvation, that we would submit ourselves to you, that we would understand that we must then take and share and proclaim this glorious good news that has saved our souls. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate the truth to our hearts and our minds. pray that by the power of the Spirit you would give us eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts that are ready and eager to receive and respond to the truth. Lord, I pray that you would, flowing from this text and the things we consider in the month ahead, pray that you would transform us into soul winners. Pray that we would see the desperate importance of preaching and proclaiming Christ, because how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Lord, I pray that you would place a great burden on our hearts to proclaim Christ. pray that as we look around that we would see not only people but souls, eternal souls that will live on forever in either heaven or hell. Pray that we would have urgency and boldness and confidence with the gospel. Pray ultimately that we would submit to the fact that it is your message, it is your word, it is your gospel alone. It is through Christ, by the working of the Spirit, that anyone can be saved. And that begins, as Jesus so clearly said, with the Father drawing one to salvation. So, Lord, may we understand that we are given the privilege of joining in with this work of evangelism. May we have a burden to know that we must proclaim because faith comes through hearing the gospel. May we rest, Lord, in your sovereign power and in your sovereign hand over the salvation of souls. Pray that you would take your word and plant it into our hearts. Again, ask, Lord, that your spirit would do the work that is required today for we cannot take away anything from your word in our own power. We must be enlightened and taught and instructed and reproved and rebuked by your Spirit. Lord, would you work in us today to bring about your purposes and to further your glory and we be ambassadors of Christ and heralds of the truth. pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So just to further set the stage a little bit, I want to look back to verses 48 through 52. This is a significant part of this immediate context right before Jesus turns to these that are termed disciples. Verse forty-eight, well, verse 47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, speaking to a group of Jews, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 52, and then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat. And so you can picture the scene. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. Again, some 20 to 25,000 people likely present. He's just being followed by these massive crowds. And rather than continuing to draw the people in and allowing his popularity to increase, Jesus makes this strange-sounding statement that he knows is going to drive the people away. Jesus said something that he knew would push the crowds away from him and and cause their disdain to fall on him, that would cause them to be perplexed by him and and to not like him and and really not even to follow him anymore. And this is because Jesus prioritized the gospel and the truth and true conversion over being comfortable, over being liked, over being well-received, and over having these crowds following after him swooning on and and holding on to his every word. Jesus was after true conversion. And so he preached a message that only could lead to true conversion. Otherwise, the crowds would leave him. So we stand upon the truth, dear friends. Let's understand this. We stand upon the truth because it is true. We, We could say that and let that be an individual statement and stand on its own. We stand upon the truth because it is true, but we also stand upon the truth because souls are at stake. If we don't stand upon the truth of the gospel, people may come and receive what we say, but if it's not the true gospel, we just put them on the path to hell. So we proclaim the truth. We fight for the truth because eternal souls are at stake in that holding, in that standing our ground upon and around the true gospel. Jesus knew as a part of his divine knowledge, he knew who was true. He knew who was false, and he didn't try to draw in the lost and keep them at his sight in their unsafe condition. You know, there's... So many in our day that just want to bring the crowds in and just kind of hope maybe they'll pick up the crumbs and, and weave through this maze of partial truths, and maybe eventually they'll get to the gospel and get the gospel right and come to Christ in faith and repentance. They want the lost to come and to stay and to listen, but they're not really concerned about true conversion. Christ had but one goal, that sinners would be saved to the glory of the Father, It's either that people be converted or that they be driven away by his teaching. John commented about this. I think this is maybe the next text we'll get to in 1 John. 1 John 2 verse 19. He said, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. And this is a mindset then of our Savior that we must emulate that we must strive after, that either sinners come to repentance or they're driven away by our holy lifestyle and our submission to and proclamation of the truth. It's got to be one or the other. Okay, So that's one thing we must understand when we consider God's sovereignty in evangelism is it's not up to us. What we are called to do is to live holy and set-apart lives and proclaim the truth. And you don't want sinners to be so hardened that they just come and remain even though you are proclaiming the truth day after day after day after day. Either they're driven away because they cannot stand the gospel of Christ or the Lord grants light to their souls, light and life, and draws them to repentance. It's important to understand that these crowds were not driven away because Jesus was cruel or mean or harsh or arrogant or any way off-putting. He didn't drive the crowds away with His actions, but with the truth. He didn't drive the crowds away because He had an annoying, overbearing personality. He drove them away because He proclaimed that He was the bread of life, the Son of God in the flesh. He was the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to come to salvation is to come through Him. And that drove people mad. That's our duty as the church, that we don't drive people away because we're those arrogant Calvinists who think we have all of our doctrine right, and and we live these cold but puffed up lives, and We we can't even have a conversation without mentioning election and predestination and particular redemption and limited atonement and all of those things. Rather, we drive people away because we tell them of the goodness and the glory of Christ. And we do that with the goal that they come to Him in faith and repentance. And so, as we consider the priority and the work and the goal of evangelism in the weeks ahead, what we really must do is look to our Savior and look to His example and strive to follow His example. You know, all of Scripture certainly is inspired. It's god breathed It's given for our instruction and correction and reproof and our training in righteousness. But dear friends, we have the perfect example in the flesh in Jesus. So Let's look to him. Let's follow his example. Jesus makes clear that only those who the Father draws will come to him. We might labor, we might toil, we might strategize and pull together all the philosophies and ideas of men to try to bring lost souls to Christ, but they will all fail because only God can bring a dead soul to life. Only the creator of that soul can make it alive in Christ. So only the Father can draw. We also need to consider what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We, we know and we believe that you are the Holy One of God. That's instructive to us in our evangelism. Again, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That needs to be how we proclaim the gospel. We must see that Jesus is the only way to salvation. We must pursue him and we must proclaim him as the only way to salvation while we rest and trust in the Father to draw souls to repentance. So, as we look at the passage before us, that's a Kind of a, a long introduction, but I kind of want to bring you up to speed on everything happening in John 6. And as we look at verses 60 through 71, I want to see three phases. And how this ties into evangelism is the fact that the exact same gospel has been proclaimed to each of these people or groups of people. And you see three starkly different responses. So we're going to see the grumbling majority the humble minority, and the betraying singularity when we look at Judas. So these will instruct our evangelism and help us to submit to God's sovereignty as we evangelize because we see that it's the same message. Jesus didn't go and give some secret, insightful message to the twelve and that caused them to stay. They heard exactly what was proclaimed to these crowds yet it's the Lord who opened their hearts to receive the truth. So let's begin the grumbling majority. The grumbling majority, verse 60 through 65. Therefore, many of the disciples, verse 16, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, in verse 61, was conscious that his disciples grumbled. Now, just a quick word here. The section before this, John is talking about the Jews. And now he's talking about some disciples who obviously were merely followers because they fell away. But, but these people, I think, from reading through John 6 are, are likely from the crowds at the beginning of the chapter when he fed the 5,000. So these are people that were there. They were with him. They were following him. They were hearing him. And then we see these responses from his disciples. Look back to verse 41. This is the Jews so, therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread of life that has come down out of heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down out of heaven? That's a clue from the Jews what's also going on with the disciples in verse 60 and following. So don't get lost in the context and think maybe there's something in what's said in the verses between. What's going on here is that the people did not like the statement of Jesus. They were not not upset because they were confused. They were upset because Jesus set himself out to be equal with God, sent from God, and the only way to salvation. That's what drove them to this anger and this grumbling and ultimately to leaving Jesus' ministry. Look at what they say. They said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Now, if you have an ESV, this is one of the times that it may be helpful. The ESV says that this is a hard saying. That's the translation there. The the word is scleros, It means rough or hard or stern or stiff. Or rigid. And so in this context, what it is, it's something that is limiting and unbendable. They're, they're, they're not they're being put off because of the exclusivity of Jesus's statement that they can't fit their, their ways and, and their desires of how they want to do religion into this proclamation that Jesus is the only way to salvation. And they don't say who can understand it, it's not that they are confused by it. They say, who can listen to it? So it's not that they're wanting to understand. It's that this is grating and grinding against what they want to hear. So you, know, you don't necessarily see it here, but you see it throughout other scriptures that people just become enraged at the truth. When they don't like a message, they're just filled with anger. They're filled with rejection and resentment to it. And we notice that this is the many. This is the majority. Jesus said, many will cry out to me on that day. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and cast out demons in your name, and I'll cast them away. Jesus said, many will enter through the broad gate, on the broad way. This is the many, or at least part of the many, who will enter hell through the broad gate. So then Jesus, knowing what's in their hearts, he responds. He said, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. When he says, does this cause you to stumble, that's almost like an all-inclusive statement when you consider some other scriptures. He's saying, do, do I cause you to stumble? Does this message cause you to stumble? In and, and Matthew eleven six, 6, Jesus said, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So, so it's not just the message that the people were taking offense to. So when he he says, does this cause you to stumble, you could almost envision that that he's stepping back with his hands, kind of pointing at himself, do I cause you to stumble? And the answer is yes. These people were looking to Jesus to be a ruler, a governmental, military ruler and king. They wanted a beautiful and stately form They wanted to follow him and him to be the end of all their persecutions. Jesus came in the form of a bondservant. He was made to be nothing. He was humble and lowly. The glorious one was laid in a manger and grew up a carpenter's son. came from obscurity. When you think about that, You you think about that mindset uh, of the world desiring this kingly ruler. Uh, You have to balance, when when you preach Christ, we have to balance a, a humble proclamation, a humility in our proclamation, but a true proclamation of Christ as the King of Kings. We don't start in the humiliated state and stay there. We need to preach that humble Christ because it is the Christ of the Bible but we need to draw him all the way to his resurrection and to his ascension to the point where he is the king of kings and the lord of lords the one who's given the name above every name the jews hated the loneliness of Christ he said well, what if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before you know They rejected Christ in his humiliation, but they had not even yet seen its fullness. The exaltation of Christ began when he hit his lowest point. The lowest point, of course, was his death. While he hung dead upon that cross, while he was buried in that grave, that was the ultimate of his humiliation. What are the Jews going to do with that? What are these disciples going to do with the lowly Christ who is put to death? Well, that's the beginning, dear friends, of his exaltation. That is the beginning of the Lord exalting him to give him that name above every name. It's like the Lord told Samuel when he was searching out David to anoint him as the next king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. If these people were, were so scandalized at the lowly form of Jesus, how are they going to respond to his crucifixion? Well, as we know from his crucifixion, they all leave him. They all despise him. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, hated by all. And Jesus then presses forward, and he reminds them, he said, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. So you can zone in here on the work of evangelism. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. If you were to preach Christ and see souls saved, it is a spiritual work. And if it's a spiritual work, dear friend, let me tell you that you have basically two functional roles that you can play. You can pray, and you can proclaim. You can't do anything else. You can't convince a soul to come to Christ on your own. You can't have such a a wise and intelligent and, and moving and emotional presentation of the gospel that souls will come to repentance. What you can do is weep over the lost people who are going to hell and then go find those lost people and preach Christ to them. And then you preach Christ and then you go back and pray for them all the more. If it's a spiritual work, we must do the spiritual work ourselves and battle within the spiritual warfare. Perhaps if you've not seen a convert when you're preaching Christ, it's because you haven't prayed enough. you thought about that? I've thought about it. Uh, I've got a former family member likely to pass into eternity soon. Try to share the gospel with him. but, But to what avail? How many times have I taken his soul before the Lord? Not as many as I should, obviously. So be faithful, dear friends. Be faithful to pray for souls. Remember what Jonathan Edwards said. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And you contribute nothing to another person's salvation either. And all they contribute to it is the sin that makes it necessary. It's a spiritual work in which we must battle and and do our plowing and do our business. The crowds were grumbling because the words that Jesus spoke were spirit and life. They didn't have the spirit and they were not alive in Christ. You need to pray that the souls that you encounter are made alive by the Spirit and are made alive in and through Christ. And as Jesus had divine knowledge, he then spoke to the people. He said, but there are some of you who do not believe because, John says, Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and even who it was that would betray him. And he said, For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted by the Father. God holds sovereign authority over salvation, period. It is God who calls. It is God who loves. It is God who elects. It's God who predestines. It's God who makes the soul alive unto salvation, The works and ideas of the flesh add and accomplish nothing. And the sooner we understand that, the more effective we can be in proclaiming Christ and winning souls, snatching them off the pathway to hell. We must have this balance that we completely depend upon the Lord in proclaiming Christ because God is sovereign. So so we must pursue and proclaim in light of that. Dear friends, we must also guard against and be careful and balance that idea with the fact that our proclamation needs to be full of passion and full of emotion, not a fake emotion, not an emotion that draws away from the truth, but a pleading emotion that shows the importance of what we proclaim. Because what we can often fall into is a dry and powerless preaching of the gospel all in the name of trusting in the sovereignty of God. As we saw in Romans 3 today, the response should be like Paul said multiple times there, may it never be. Preach Christ with passion. The Lord is over salvation. He will draw souls to himself because the Lord is all about his glory. And what accomplishes the Lord's glory, what accomplishes His plan, is to bring souls to salvation. So as we think about the grumbling majority, the takeaway is to understand that evangelism is a spiritual work. And it's not a popular work. You're probably not going to go out and bat a thousand. Every person you share Christ with comes to Christ. You're going to be rejected and scorned and turned away from probably much more than you see souls won. But that's not the point. Because Jesus went from 20,000 down to 12, as we'll see in the next section. We must proclaim with humility. We must pray with fervency. We must boldly rejoice in the work of God as it's accomplished. So the grumbling majority and then the humble minority, verses 66 through 69. So this is the the second group, the second response. It says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So again, same message in a completely different response. And it is the few. It is the minority. Now, I would not say that all of the 20,000 went away unsaved, but what you see is he started with 20,000, And in short time, he ended up, the only ones that were there were the twelve. It's the minority and the few, and that's God's sovereignty at work. He will save whom he chooses. He will draw whom he chooses. So Jesus asked the question, you do not want to go away also, do you? You're not turning away because you don't like my message and you want to go pursue the passions of your flesh? and Peter responds. Of course, Peter responds. Peter always was the one to respond, but dear friends, this is one of the few times he got it right. Simon Peter answered, "'Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One. You are the Son of God.'" the humble dependence of this answer. He says, where should we go? To whom shall we turn? What other message would we want to hear? These are the words of eternal life. You know, this is not the only time that Peter gave the right response. In Matthew 16, after he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter gave that response, and then Jesus responded. He said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So what you see is that response in Matthew 16, this response in John chapter 6, is not the response of an intellectual Intelligent, wise man. This is the response of one who is made alive by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I can't help but think about really, I was going to say new believers, but new believers and all the way to the end of uh, mature believers alike. Oftentimes, We want to have all the answers, and I think the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you know you don't have all the answers, and you won't have all the answers, but you know where to go to find them, but you want to have the answers. Well, friend, I would encourage you, especially if you're new in the faith, don't worry about having all the answers. That comes with time as you walk with the Lord and walk in His Word, but get this right. Get the gospel down. Know that you have nowhere else to go. Because Jesus is the Christ, the Holy One, the Son of the living God, the One in whom there is life. Peter's response shows us the supremacy and the priority of the Word of God in our evangelism. Where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Not only the supremacy of the Word, but it shows us the authority too. And and Scripture makes clear, again, on the, the, the main topic of this morning, that God is sovereign over salvation. Ephesians 1. He chose us before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed upon us in the Beloved. He chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. Ephesians 2, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Verses 4 and 5, but because of his great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. The sovereignty of God in evangelism. He is over salvation. In John five thirty nine. Jesus told some Jews, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me, the authority and the priority of God's Word in evangelism. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. All of the Scriptures point to Christ. You may not go directly see Christ in every verse and every word, but He is the great end of every story. He is the great purpose of all of Scripture. He is its central figure. All of creation is by Him, through Him, and for Him. We must see this great authority of Christ and His Word. The Word must have first place in our lives, The word must have first place in our church, and the word must have first place in our evangelism. It's got to be the grounding point of all of those where it will be the grounding point of none. If you go out and win the world with some type of shenanigans, they're not going to come to the church to hear the word. If they come to the church and you think you win them with some sort of entertaining message, they're not going to stay to hear the truth. And if your life is not grounded upon that truth, it will not be the message that you proclaim. The Word has priority. But not only is the Word supreme in our evangelism, but do you see in Peter's response, verse 69, that Jesus himself is supreme in our evangelism. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We can't just acknowledge that Jesus is a good teacher. It's what the Jews did, and it was putting them on a pathway to hell. We must know and believe and have our lives altered and transformed by the fact that he is the Holy One. The Son of the Most High God, God in the flesh. The incarnation and the deity of Christ are primary doctrines of the church, of believers, of Scripture. It's ground that we must hold, it's ground that we must understand. This message of who Christ is and what he did is the single most important message in the universe. We must be like the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified. He's a stumbling block to the Jews. He's foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ. Christ literally means anointed. He is the Messiah, the chosen one of God, the one through whom God offers salvation. He is the choice, Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. This must be the Christ Christ that we know, and this must be the Christ that we preach. Otherwise, you preach a false Christ, and you lead those who hear and respond to your message further and deeper into hell preach this Christ. So we've seen two groups, and then there's a third response to look at, the betraying singularity, and we'll be a little more brief here, looking at verses 70 and 71, considering Judas. So Peter makes this proclamation, and Jesus answers them. He said, "'Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil?' Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, because he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So again, three responses. Three stark, different responses to the same gospel message, to the same proclamation, to the same instruction. Two different responses, even within this inner circle of the twelve you had that majority, that, that large group that left because they didn't like the message. But then you have the 12 who walked with Jesus closely, and you have the eleven who were true followers, and you have the one who was a devilish betrayer, the sovereignty of God in and salvation. And this is certainly not a case where the Lord was surprised or, caught unaware by the response of Judas. It's not a point where the Lord tried to call and to draw and to save Judas, but he was just overpowered by Satan, for that could never happen. This is a case where the Lord allowed Judas's eyes to remain blinded in his sin. He allowed his heart to remain hard in his sin because the Lord was going to accomplish a specific purpose through this vile sinner. MacArthur commented here that in response to Peter's words that the disciples had come to believe in Jesus, Jesus reminded them that he sovereignly chose them, and Jesus then wouldn't allow even a whisper of human pretension in God's sovereign selection. Jesus was making this divine election crystal clear, because otherwise you might start to wonder, how did this happen? How did Judas fall away? How was he the son of perdition? But these 11 came. They must have done something in their own. But Jesus said, I'm the one that called. I drew you in, and yet I allowed one of you to remain a devil. Let me tell you, this story of Judas, it's troubling in so many ways. It's one of the, the hardest, I think, stories in Scripture to study just because there's just so much evil there's so much wickedness. I, I think this is true. It's coming to my mind right now. I think John MacArthur said that, that he wrote his dissertation on Judas Iscariot because he was just so intrigued and it had never seen one done. And, and so he wanted to study what happened with Judas. And so that's where he went in his academic studies. But this can just be so troubling, I think, to Consider it, and two ways that it can trouble us that I want to think about and address. Firstly, in our evangelism, in our discipleship, in our relationships with one another, you know, ours is not to immediately know at every turn if one is in Christ or if they are fake, fraud, a phony, and feigning obedience to Christ. There are some who do that. Dear friends, do you realize that the other 11 disciples did not know that Judas was a fraud? They walked closely together in that inner circle, and they didn't know that he was going to betray the Savior. Ours is not always to know. There's oftentimes clarity. You can see the transformation of a heart and the transformation and the change of a life, but sometimes that's only at the surface level. And what we must do is observe the change of a heart and the change of a life over the course of a life. If you just think you're going to take three months or six months or a year of someone and determine whether or not they're in the faith, you can't do it. You, You might can see that fruit, but you don't know if it's lasting. Does a person quickly sprout and show fruit that withers just as quickly because there's no depth? Or do they, because they're rooted in the gospel and rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit, do they produce true, lasting, long-term fruit? Sometimes you will be deceived by others. Sometimes those who who are near you and around you will fake a repentance, and you will be hurt, you will be deceived, you may pour time and energy into discipleship only to say, well, that was utterly worthless. Dear friend, let me tell you, it's not worthless. You preach Christ, and you teach the truth, because if you're preaching Christ, and that person is still a lost sinner, that gospel still has the power to save. And if you teach the truth and they are a saint in Christ, they will grow. So let me encourage patient, continual proclamation of Christ and the whole truth of Scripture, the whole counsel of the Word of God. So that's one troubling thing with Judas is how he turned away and how those around us could do the same thing. Well, friend, keep preaching. Keep teaching. Keep investing. Keep correcting. Keep drawing that person to the goodness of Christ and see what he will do with a soul. Now, the second consideration, I think, maybe as obvious is, what about ourselves? What if we are self-deceived now? I I think you could make an argument that Judas knew that he was not in Christ, and we'll get there in a second. But, But we ask the, the question at times, I think, am I self-deceived? Do, do I want to be in Christ, but really I'm not there? Well, friend, let me just give you one statement from Jesus that should be as wind in your sails and strength in your back. Luke 6, 45. Jesus said, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart dear friend does your heart desire to make much of christ does your heart desire to follow him your actions should be following but does your heart Desire to please and glorify Christ because you love Him? Or are you just obeying the Lord because you feel like you have to and really your heart is full of all this wicked sin and you just want to go pursue all of that, but you know you're supposed to do all these other things and so you do them effectively out of a sense of moralism or legalism? Do you treasure Christ? Do you love His Word? You obey his commands because you love him and desire his glory and not the praise of men. That is how you evaluate whether or not you are a Judas. Judas betrayed the Lord because he was hard hearted, because his treasures were temporal and earthly and fleshly. That's why he betrayed Christ. So, to draw us to a close, let me encourage you and remind you, friends, that as you engage in evangelism, number one, you must remember that the Lord is over salvation, period, end of statement. It's the Lord who draws. It's the Lord who gives light and life and transforms. You don't know, dear friend, if you're dealing with one of these people who were in these crowds. You don't know if you're dealing with a Judas. You don't know if you're dealing with a Peter. One who would receive and respond to the truth, one who maybe fumbles the ball a lot, but ultimately is firmed up by the powerful working of the Spirit and brought to life. You preach Christ. You pray fervently for souls. Dear friends, just coming back to that, that's, I think, one area where we must probably all fall the most short. Do you pray? for souls? Do you pray for opportunities to preach Christ? Fervently pray and then boldly proclaim. And as you do that, dear one, the Lord is glorified because the Lord will bring souls to life and he will also, in his sovereign authority, send souls to hell. And he's glorified in both because in hell he shows his just wrath. But in heaven, he shows the glories of his grace. Close with two quotes from Spurgeon. Firstly, he said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I don't have to explain that. Either you're a preacher of Christ Or you're a fake Christian, a hypocrite, one who does not know the Lord you proclaim. Which one is it? You can trust the Lord's sovereignty and still go out and be a bold, zealous, fervent preacher. Spurgeon also said, you have never truly found Christ if you do not tell others about Him. You've never truly found Christ if you don't tell others about Him. Because He changes your life, He changes your heart, He transforms you, and you're full of the desire to make Him known. So, do you know Christ? Do you proclaim Him? Are you a missionary? Or are you an imposter? God is sovereign over salvation, but he commands that we preach. We preach Christ crucified. How can someone come to saving faith if they don't hear the good news of the gospel? You don't have to raise your hand, but just think about this. How many of you came to Christ the first time you heard the gospel message? I'm going to bet none of us would raise our hands to that question. Go preach Christ. We're surrounded by people who have heard some form of the gospel. Go preach Christ. Go make him known. Do it in the power of the Spirit so that God may receive all the glory. If you come back tonight, it's the idea that we're going to consider. Evangelism, is it for God's glory Or is it for man's need? And the answer, in a way, is both. But ultimately, evangelism, all of life, is to the glory of God. So come back tonight, and Clark will unpack that idea for us. Let's close in prayer.